Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. When you're an American Express Platinum card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Today's business travelers are finding that fitting in a little leisure time keeps them recharged and excited on work trips. I know this because whenever I travel for work, I always try and meet up with a friend to catch up, have a great dinner, or hit a museum wherever I am. So if you're traveling for work, go with the card that puts the travel in business travel, the Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card. If you travel, you know. Hey, so if you're a business owner or hiring manager struggling to attract and retain top talent, it's no secret that finding the right employees and keeping them engaged can be an uphill battle. Fortunately, there's Insperity, a leading HR provider. They'll help you improve hiring and compensation practices, and your people will get the training tools they need to thrive. Download their free ebook at insperity.com for tips to build your dream team. Don't let a lack of talent hinder your goals. Spend less time worrying about recruitment and retention and more time growing your business. See how Insperity provides HR that makes a difference at Insperity.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to How I Built This Resilience Edition from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. Each week on Thursdays, we invite entrepreneurs and other business leaders to come onto the show live to talk about how they've been building resilience into their businesses this year. And you can join us every Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 Eastern on the How I Built This Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn pages or on NPR's YouTube page to hear the live conversation and maybe even ask a question. And today, my conversation with Ethan Diamond, the CEO and co-founder of Bandcamp. Bandcamp describes itself as an online record store and music community. Any band or musician can post their music on the site, sell it, and also offer merchandise and tickets for live performances. And the artists keep more than 80% of the profit. Bandcamp had been steadily growing since its launch in 2007, but last year was its biggest yet. Traffic to the site surged as concerts and festivals mostly shut down. You know, as you said, we're uh, essentially an online record store and music community where fans connect with artists and directly support them. And uh, about half the business is physical records. So vinyl, cassettes, CDs, a lot of T-shirts as well. And then half the business is uh, digital music. So people buying uh, digital albums and um, digital tracks directly from the artist. And we also recently launched live streaming. So now tickets are part of it as well. But, um, you know, I would say that the thing that, uh, that really sets us apart is that we've just built the whole company around the welfare of the artist. So we don't uh, we don't sell advertising. We don't really focus on subscriptions. We just help artists um, sell their music. And then we take a small uh, revenue share on every sale. So, 
what I like to say is that we only make money um, if artists make a lot more money. And, mm. you know, that sort of alignment of interest that we have um, built into our business model is really just everything that we're about. I would, I, you know, we're, I would say an artist first music company. And something like 85% on average of the revenue goes directly to the artist, right? Yeah, it's it ends up being, uh, there's payment processing fees, and then there's stamps fee. So on our and it varies by transaction size. But on average, it comes out to about 82% that goes directly to the to the artist. And then we pay that out. Uh, every it usually takes about 24 to 48 hours. Wow. I, I've heard it described a little bit like Etsy for independent music. Is that a fair comparison? Totally. Yeah. I, and which I take as a compliment, right? I think that that's, um, I think it's a really good comparison. Uh, Etsy and Bandcamp are both really large marketplaces that uh, I think really focus on supporting the creators. Yeah. I buy a lot of stuff of Etsy actually this past year. All right. So, so in the late nineties, one of my favorite books, um, which is when I, when I reread it now, rethink about it now, it's a little bit dated just because of the content. But it was at the time, I was a younger man, it was High Fidelity. I love that book by Nick Hornby. I even like the movie, even though it took place in Chicago, not in the UK. And so was that you? Like, the, you launched this in 2007. Were you that guy? Were you like, I'm going to launch an independent record store online? And what? how did you come up with the idea? Yeah, I don't know if uh, it wasn't quite... <laughs> The thought initially wasn't really a record store. It evolved into that. So I'll, I'll take you through it. So basically what happened is uh, about 13 years ago, there was a band uh, that I loved and they decided that, um, you know, they were going to sell their new record uh, directly to their fans on their own website. And on the day that that record came out, I went to their site and the site just didn't load at all. Huh. And I thought, oh, they must, you know, they must be slammed. I'll come back the next yeah. time. And, uh, and the site loaded on that day, but it loaded very, very slowly. Um, this was also in the days of flash. Everything was flash. Yeah. So, you know, it took a while to figure out exactly what was going on on the site, but eventually I bought the album and, but then I didn't actually get anything, <laughs> you know, the transaction went through, but no, no music. It was never sent to you or, or was like a digital, it was going to be a digital, yeah, download? This was a digital, a digital album. What was the band by the way? Oh, you, you know, know what? I <laughs> I don't want to call them out because kind of okay. the point is that it, this was a lot of bands at this point. You know, I wrote to, there was an email address on the site and I wrote to the, um, the address and I think it was the lead singer who wrote me back and wow. he, he just sent me a link to a zip file and a totally open zip file that, you know, anybody could then share. And, um, and then I opened that up and there were all these, all of these files with names like master three final. <laughs> yes. Yes. Super low quality, no liner notes, nothing. And, you know, I just basically in this process ran into like every technical problem that you could imagine. Yeah. And that just, it killed me for two reasons. You know, one, I, the music was amazing. And I thought the artist, I thought they deserved all the success in the world. And, you know, when you love right. artists, right, you want everybody else to hear them. Right. So right. But I knew, like as a result of all these problems, very few other people would. But I, you know, the other thing that killed me about it was that I thought that what they were doing, like it made perfect sense. You know, of course, an artist should be able to go directly to their fans for support. The internet makes that super easy. This is the promise of it, I think. And 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 I also think it just creates this mutual that direct uh, connection creates this mutually beneficial relationship because not only does the artist get to uh, make more music when I pay them, but also I get to feel like I'm participating in the creation of more of the art 
that I love. So I'm more directly connected to that music. But, uh, you know, this was 2007 and there were just no mechanisms like yeah. this for musicians. There was MySpace. MySpace, yeah. Was, um, you know, they didn't have a way through MySpace to sell directly to fans. Right. And, and it wasn't really your site. It was, you know, their logo, a bunch of their advertising. It was their right. traffic, their whole identity, right? And then so you had like all of these forward thinking bands, in my opinion, uh, who were spending a lot of time, a lot of money building out custom sites and then ending up with something that, you know, didn't really work. And I, I found that particularly crazy because, if, again, in 2007, if you were a writer, you had blogger, type pad, movable right. type all these things that let you set up your own site very, very quickly and easily. And then it would say like powered by movable type in the bottom. Yeah. Right. right. But it was yours. Right. Yeah. And it just seems so weird that if your artistic output was words, you had all those options. If your artistic output was music, you know, you're, you're out of luck. So, you know, I wanted to solve uh, that problem, not just for, you know, this one artist that I ran into, but for every artist. One of the crazy things about your business is that, it's actually been profitable, I think, since 2012. And it's actually quite amazing because if you think about, and we'll talk about Spotify in a moment, but if you think about Spotify, Spotify's valued, I don't know, like $50 billion or something like that. And they have never been profitable, right? It's never, they've never turned a profit. Um, and it's a company that is growing and, and focuses on growth and, and has a, a growth strategy. Um, what do, do you guys, is that part of your strategy is growth and, and scale and, you know, all these terms that you, I mean, you're in San Francisco, you know, you know, these terms, do all those terms matter to you, to your, to your vision for Bandcamp? Um, no, <laughs> they don't. No, I mean, we're really just, I focused on our mission of serving artists. That's what inspires me. That's what I, you know, what I get excited about doing. And I would say the company has grown and succeeded more as a, as a side effect of focusing on that mission that we really have. And that to me is just, you know, that's, that's a lot more satisfying than if we, I think, took the approach of, yeah, we were focused on what our mission here is actually grow the company, get it to this size, go public, sell it, whatever it is. Um, that just hasn't really been the focus um, ever. Yeah. And I mean, basically, from the perspective of an artist, right, you you put your music up on band. And these are artists who don't generally want to work for with a with a label, presumably. These are artists who, who want to retain all the rights, all the master recordings. They want to control their careers. Those are the people who put their music up on Bandcamp? It's actually um, both artists uh, who are completely independent and uh, artists who are on labels. So we were at this point, we have um, almost 10,000 independent labels on the site. Uh, so um, Sub Pop, Merge, ATO, uh, Ninja Tune, Relapse, uh, just loads and loads of independent labels. In fact, I did not even know that there were so many you know, independent <laughs> labels in the world until um, I started working on Bandcamp. I've been blown away by that. And, you know, when I think of when a lot of people hear the word label, they think of, you know, Sony, Warner, right. Universal, right? Big, the big, the major labels. Um, but there's a huge, huge uh, number of these independent labels out there. That, and some of them are really quite large, um, like Beggars um, Group. And, uh, but, you know, a lot of them are just, you know, mom and pop kinds of uh, small businesses. And, um, and yeah, they, they, they and their artists are a big, big part of Bandcamp. So I know that like Bjork, her catalog is on Bandcamp and Peter Gabriel, um, some of his, his work is on Bandcamp. And it may be difficult for you to answer this question. You may not know, but 
um, given the Etsy uh, comparison, is it on average? I mean, do artists make a living off of their work on Bandcamp or, or is it sort of part of a bigger ecosystem of the things they do? I would say that any artist should be doing a lot of a lot of things, you know, they should be on Bandcamp and they should be in a lot of other places as well. And I think that's had the approach that almost all of them take. But yeah, I mean, a lot of artists uh, that are on Bandcamp are uh, making significant amount of money. We hear uh, all the time, uh, mostly through Twitter, that, uh, you know, the the money that artists make uh, through Bandcamp is orders of magnitude bigger than what they're making from streaming services, um, that it's how they're, you know, paying rent and getting equipment and, uh, buying groceries and all of all of that. So it's clear that we're, to me, a part of um, how a ton of artists are sustaining themselves. And that's that is great. Um, I love, you know, I love hearing that. But, you know, the focus uh, for us has never been on like measuring how many people are making over this amount, how many people are making over this amount, because part of what makes Bandcamp Bandcamp is that, you know, anybody can sign up for it. You can sign up for it tomorrow and start five different bands. And, you know, thinking about what that would mean for like the average that each artist makes, it just starts to not make any sense that, that you would, uh, that we would measure it that way. Instead, what we really are measuring is like the total amount that fans are paying artists through the site is that going up and um and yeah I th- that's that's generally been the focus you know ethan it's it's so interesting because when you when you guys came up with this concept in 2007 the conventional wisdom was that no one is going to pay for music in the future this was just like in the sort of post napster era and it was sort of pre spotify but the idea was that no one was going to pay for music in the future that it was going to be something that you just got and and to some extent that is true right i mean i mean the sort of the major label artists make most of their money off live touring and and there you know very few of them are making a lot of money off spotify obviously the biggest ones are how did you know i mean how did you know that people would be willing to pay for this music or did you know i mean were you at any point worried that people just wouldn't wouldn't pay for it yeah i know that was definitely the hunch at the beginning because i that's what i wanted personally you know i wanted to have that direct relationship with an artist and directly support them and i figured there's got to be other people out there who want to do it this way and who want to um, directly support ours, but there's just, there's no way to do it. It's not easy to do. And there was a moment um, early on that I think where everything clicked. And that was um, when we were looking at the search terms that people were using to get to Bandcamp that ultimately ended in a sale. And we found, uh, again, 2008, 2009. So we, what we were competing with, right, as you said, was like LimeWire, right? Hulk share and stuff like that. So we looked at those search terms and it was the name of an album plus the word torrent or the name of an artist plus, you know, free MP3 or something like that. And so, you know, I don't know that the people who were using those search terms were necessarily thinking to themselves, I want to get this music for free or, you know, steal this music. But when they got to a place Bandcamp, where it was clear that they, if they bought here, they were directly supporting an artist that actually led to a sale. So that moment where we saw those kinds of search terms resulting in money getting to artists was really the moment where it felt like, oh yeah, this is going to work. When we come back in just a moment, more of my conversation with Ethan Diamond and why artists and labels have told Ethan, please don't sell the company. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This Resilience Edition from NPR. 
The New York Times best-selling book, How I Built This, is now available. It's a great read and a great gift for anyone looking for ideas, inspiration, wisdom, and encouragement to have the courage to put out an idea into the world. It's filled with tons of stories you haven't heard about how some of the greatest entrepreneurs you know and respect started out at the very bottom. Check out How I Built This, the book, available wherever you buy your books. As a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long, and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. Isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions for you and your customers. LinkedIn Ads allow you to build the right relationships, drive results, and reach your customers in a respectful environment. You'll be able to drive results with targeting and measurement tools built specifically for B2B. In technology, LinkedIn generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social media platforms. I've talked to hundreds of founders and business leaders every day on this show, and I've learned that LinkedIn has been vital to the growth of their companies. It helps them build relationships with customers and get direct access to thousands of decision makers. Make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash built this to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash built this. Terms and conditions apply. Our friends at Corient provide wealth management services centered around you. And you know what? Corient's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Corient can help high achievers just like you preserve your wealth and provide for the people, causes, and communities you care about. Corient has extensive knowledge across the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management. They're one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and they have deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations, teams that put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We're talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This Resilience Edition. And I'm talking with Ethan Diamond. He's the CEO and co-founder of Bandcamp, an online record store and music community. I know that your growth has been slow and steady and consistent over time. And and last year was a, a huge growth year we'll talk about in a moment. But it seems to me that what you've built is a company that is sustainable, where you're able to pay people a you know a decent salary no one's a billionaire out of bandcamp um but i have to imagine that there've been times over over the past 10 years where you have been approached by bigger companies that want to buy you or investors who want to pump more money into the company 
to grow it. Um, and, and that can be tempting for an entrepreneur because, you know, you've got people who work for you and there's a lot of pressure to grow and build and scale. And, and, and I wonder how you have resisted that kind of pressure to, to do that. Well, yes. Um, you know, before the pandemic hit, we had regular meetups uh, all the time with artists and labels uh, around the around the world, really. And the the most common thing that um, that I heard uh, from people, you know, direct from artists and labels uh, during those meetings, were things like, you know, "Hey, I just wanted to come over and say, please don't ever sell the company. You're our last hope." You know, things things like that, and. You know, I, I take that responsibility that, you know, the, the service that we are now providing to artists and labels, to, I take it, you know, it's a really, it's a responsibility I take very, very seriously. So, you know, we would, I think, really only um, align ourselves with uh, another company that that had the welfare of the artist in mind in this in this same way. And, um, and yeah, I, you know, taking money, um, it can sometimes... It's a, it can sometimes change, you know, change your goals, change them to, you know, growth at all costs. And so getting, as you said, to, you know, getting to profitability, that was a really important milestone for us. We wanted to make, we wanted to do that because we wanted to be able to retain control of the company and know that this mission that we have um, would be around long-term. Yeah. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs are looking to build community around their products and there's a whole, you know, there, there are sessions and, and you know, educational opportunities. And, and founders are looking to figure out how do you build community, community, community. And everyone seems to want to build a media company these days. But um, it's it's something that's very difficult to just build, to, to kind of create out of nothing, right, especially if it's inauthentic. And I know that you're the sort of the cent- central, one of the central forces of Bandcamp is the community. And, and it seems to me that the community has really kind of driven the business decisions that you make, right? Like there are fan accounts and there's a social media interface where you can see what other people are buying and listening to. And the community, I mean, especially when you talk about independent music, like they uh, they have strong views on what it means to sell out and to compromise. Um, so how much does the community, I mean, how much does the community matter in terms of how you guys think of what what you do? You know, this this gets back to your earlier question about um, about you know the high fidelity and you know being that record store because when we started off, because MySpace was kind of the reference point where the community had devolved essentially into people spamming each other's pages with their own flyers and saying thanks for the ad and things like that. <laughs> um, we decided that there wasn't going to be no community on Bandcamp, zero. <laughs> you know, there's, there was just, we were essentially a white label service. In those early days, we were a white label service for artists and that was it. You know, after a couple of years of doing this and there were, there were enough artists on the site where people started to say, you know, hey, could you tell me, you know, what are the other like math rock uh, bands that are on Bandcamp? And my reaction at first was, you know, why do you, I don't understand why you care, you know, just use, use Google, type math rock into Google and go right. find other bands right and but then once you know once we'd gone from maybe 10,000 bands to 100,000 bands it started to really make sense to me that there was an opportunity here that there was a group of people of like-minded fans who want to directly support artists and directly connect with them in this way and that we have a chance to help facilitate that right so we started building the community up but 
very carefully and around the idea that the community is that your your ticket to participate in this community is that you are an actual supporter of these artists. So you don't, you know, click a like button or a heart to add something to a collection. You have you transact right to create a collection. And that gives the collection so much more meaning, right? Because you actually spent a limited resource, right? Your money to create this collection. So, you know, that's become um, just an incredibly important part of the business. It drives something like 30 uh, plus percent of the sales. So meaning, you know, if you as an artist are adding your music to the site, you know, you can expect that that community to find you and draw and that you benefit from that in a way that would be very different from you just setting up, you know, your own um, standalone site. So, yeah, I, um, I, I feel like the community has gone from something that, you know, I, I thought, you know, it's just an annoyance to at first, you know, again, based on MySpace to something that um, is really uh, a key to the entire thing. How do you think, Ethan, the music industry will change and in a post-pandemic world, if if at all, I think there's um, good news and bad news about that. You know, I, I'll start with the bad news. I think uh, you know a lot of venues have closed uh, during the pandemic, and I think a lot more are likely to close because uh, the the Save Our Stages Act the mo- that passed, but the money hasn't been distributed yet. So I worry right. about what's going to happen to um, to all those venues. And in the meantime, you know, one of the crazier monopolies that exists between Live Nation, biggest venue owner, promoter, manager of artists and Ticketmaster, um, and, you know, clear channel slash iHeartMedia that owns radio, right. You know, live nation has, uh, their, their stock has tripled during the pandemic. Um, and, you know, you kind of wonder like, well, why, why is that right? What's going on? They haven't had a concert in, in a year. And I think that's just because everybody, well, the market anyway, is expecting the sort of the stranglehold to only get worse, which isn't good for us, you know, music fans, right? The tickets will get more expensive. I think there'll be less diversity in music as a result, but, um, but, you know, laws are changing, right? Uh, uh, there's a lot of activity and antitrust activity that, uh, that I'm, you know, cautiously optimistic about, but, you know, the, the other, the other part of the industry, I would say that the good news is that I think a lot of people have rethought how to support artists during the pandemic. And there's been a, a lot of conversation about like, well, okay, if artists aren't touring or aren't doing shows, what is the way to keep, you know, keep art alive at this time and how should we be compensating artists? And, uh, you know, that's a conversation that, you know, I've, I feel like that's why we started Bandcamp, right? To, because of the, those issues. So to know that people are thinking about that and that it's changing, that there is a lot more direct support happening through platforms like ours uh, is really encouraging to me. I know um, you've got a brick and mortar record store in Oakland, California, and a live venue space there. And presumably it's it, it's been challenging to keep those open. Um, but I wonder... Given the consolidation in the industry, especially when it comes to live events, is there a world where Bandcamp in a post-pandemic world enters that space and somehow creates venues uh, for, you know, or, or partners with people to create more independent venues for, for live events? We've thought about it for sure. And I think it's, it would be really interesting to get into, you know, our, 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 I guess, toe dip into this world is our new live streaming service um, that we really just launched. We've rolled it out now to, um, it's in 
about 100,000 artists have been enabled with this. And it allows you to stream to anybody. So, you know, you can, you publish a show, it goes out to all of your followers. You can have an integrated merch table. Seeing some of those early shows, it's very exciting to me because people are buying the merch. There's a chat uh, that's very uh, active. And when somebody mm-hmm. buys something, it shows up in the chat, hey, this person actually just bought this vinyl record. And then that kind of triggers more people to do that. And when I think about how many artists are on Bandcamp, and it seems inevitable that we'll get to this point where all these there'll be shows happening constantly. And you'll be able to have that experience of, you know, when you go to a town that's a music town like Austin or New, yeah. or New Orleans, right? And you walk down the street and you just hear music everywhere around yeah. you and you pop your head in and see what's going on and potentially fall in love with a new artist, right? That That's the experience that um, that I think we'll soon have on Bandcamp. Is that feature something you rolled out that, that you had planned to roll out last year or or was the was that feature a response to what was going on in, in the pandemic world? 100% a response, yeah. Wow. It, it, not, we weren't thinking about entering that at all. And in retrospect, it was kind of crazy that we weren't. It was conceived, designed, and built in a very, very short period of time. We we moved uh, several people off of other projects to get that done. I know that last year was a a huge year for you. But by the way, what kind of growth did you see in 2020 in terms of, yeah, just overall growth? Um, it was enormous. I mean, it was uh, everything more or less doubled in in 2020. Um, you know, artist signups, fan signups, sales through the site, digital, wow. music, physical music. Yeah. And I know that last year you started something called Bandcamp Fridays, where I think you started pretty pretty soon after the like the shutdown in San Francisco, which was March 17th. I think that Friday you you basically. Um, had this Bandcamp Friday, which which was a day where all of the proceeds, except for the processing fees, go to the artist. So you guys waive your commission, and it was huge. Like, like you you sold like four and a half million dollars worth of music in like twenty four hours. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, we and it happened very very quickly. You know, the the, the pandemic hit, the shutdown happened, we realized, okay, artists are losing a huge part of their, many artists are losing a huge part of their income. What can we, you know, this is our community. What can we do to help? We've had successful fundraisers in the past. Um, like when the the former president had the Muslim travel ban, we had a really successful fundraiser for ACLU. Uh, the former president had um, the transgender military ban, and we held uh, a very successful fundraiser for the um, Transgender Law Center. Uh, we've done others, and it just felt like, okay, well, what's what are we going to do? What's the organization that we should support uh, this time? Should it be something in um, helping support the venues that are shut down, helping maybe support artist uh, health care? And ultimately, what we settled on was yeah, something very simple, which is, yes, waiving our revenue share. And we scrambled to do that. Uh, we had our first one on March 20th of last year. And, uh, it, you know, it was it was huge. It was uh, it was about 15 times our normal Friday sales. Wow which um, for the systems team, for support, for developers, every, it was a really uh, big effort to, uh, to keep the site running and, and have it keep up with all of that. But, you know, obviously the benefit to artists was enormous. And since then we've had, we have another one tomorrow, but we've had 11 since then. And just on those days, fans have paid artists uh, $50 million. Through the wow. I, I mean, it, it is amazing and in, incredible and obviously aligns with your mission, but you're also running a company that has to – how many employees do you have? About 100 now. 
So you have to pay 100 people and obviously help sustain their lives. So you have to be profitable. And I imagine doing that, having those Bandcamp Fridays where you, you guys are getting no money, but you're still processing the fees and you still have to work, right, to, to make that happen. That, that's, that can't be easy financially for the company to absorb. You know, we were concerned at the beginning. It, we, you know, it was the first one we did. We didn't know how it was going to go at all. And we didn't know that we were going to do another one. And we didn't call it Bandcamp Friday. That's something that just happened, you know, on, on social media. People started calling it that. And we're like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's say, embrace that and, and uh, use that for all of the future ones as well. But, what, you know, what we saw after that first one is that it resulted in a lot of artists uh, driving awareness to their fans that, hey, here's a way to directly support me. And that extends past that day of the month, right? Uh, you know, on, on Bandcamp Friday, 93% of what a fan spends gets to the artist. On the other wow. days of the year, right, it's 82% on average. Yeah. So all days are good days, right, to support an artist. And, and so the effect of these days has been a big positive, I think, for artists overall. And then because of this alignment of our business model with the interests of the artist, it actually is a huge benefit to Bandcamp as well, the company. So nice. yes, we waive our revenue share on those days, but I feel like, and, and the numbers prove out that uh, it's been a net benefit for the company overall. What, what advice would you give to an entrepreneur who wants to run an ethical business, a mission-focused business like yours, but has the opportunity to grow it very quickly and to scale it, if only they would shift their business model or their values ever so slightly. What would you say to them? Well, I guess it just completely depends on what that slight shift looks like. I, I think, you know, my, my advice and what has served us really, really well has been aligning the business model with uh, the community that we're here to serve. And if the shift still allows you to do that, then the only risk really, is, I think, is that, um, you know, the priorities of a major investor aren't necessarily going to be your exact same priorities. You may have to find yourself in a situation where you're pushed to sell the company or pushed to, um, to grow quickly in a way that risks your mission, right? But yeah, I, I think that at the core, the problem that I've seen in, you know, previous companies that I've worked at is when there's that misalignment in, you know, what you're apparently uh, here to do versus how you actually make money. So that, and that's typically a problem like in advertising based businesses where, you know, the, the sales team on the advertising side wants to encroach on the interface as much as possible and get people to see as many ads as possible. And you're, you know, maybe trying to, you know, make a, a mail program, for example, you know, where you're just trying to make uh, the best possible product that uh, people say subscribe to or something like that. So when, when that misalignment occurs, I feel like that's when, when anybody uh, gets into trouble. But that's, I think, the majority also of businesses, right? That's an excerpt from my live conversation with Ethan Diamond, the CEO and co-founder of Bandcamp. If you want to see the full interview or any of our past live interviews, you can find them on the How I Built This Facebook page or at youtube.com slash NPR. And if you want to join our conversation live and maybe even ask questions, they happen every Thursday at 9 Pacific, noon Eastern. If you want to find out more about the How I Built This Resilience series or other virtual NPR events, you can go to nprpresents.org. This episode was produced by Liz Metzger with help from Ferris Safari, J.C. Howard, Bruce Grant, El Mannion, Gianna Cappadona, John Isabella, 
Julia Carney, Neva Grant, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is Janet Ujong Lee. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and I'll see you in a few days. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This Resilience Edition from NPR. Yo, Trey. Yeah, Kevin, what's up, man? I was just thinking, what would have happened if Drew Brees didn't fail his physical with the Dolphins and ended up playing under Nick Saban in Miami? There's a good shot the Finns establish a dynasty. Tom Brady and Bill Belichick probably don't become goats, and Tuscaloosa doesn't become the center of the college football universe. That's a butterfly effect for real. Hey, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier. We're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Intercepted at the goal line by Malcolm Butler. Sorry, Marshawn, still too soon. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today.